Welcome to Inspiring Innovation, where your host, Sean Frost, is joined by experts in the manufacturing industry to discuss bringing big ideas to life. Join us every episode for a deep dive into manufacturing trends, processes, innovation, and how to be successful in the ever-changing world of manufacturing. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Inspiring Innovation. We're excited to have you here today, and we encourage you to like and subscribe to the podcast. We are exploring manufacturing trends and We are excited to talk to people in supply chain, in sourcing, buyers, and different engineers who might be looking to launch a product into the world. So we are here today with Ron Huell, and he is the founder and president of Pivot Step Consultants. We found him through Jen Fennell, our director of supply chain, and her involvement in ATA, the Advanced Textiles Association. She's a board member. She's seen Ron present. He's on the board. And he's been building relationships between the Army National Guard, Phillips Healthcare, Northrop, Grumman and General Dynamics. That one's a tough one for me to say, but he's been in legislative affairs at the Pentagon. He served 24 years in active duty in the Army. And so we're really excited to have him on the podcast today. He's the first guest that we've had outside of our internal executive team. So we're excited to meet with Ron virtually here. Ron, are you in DC today? Where do we find you? I'm at home (laughs) in, in Metro DC. Army sent me here kicking and screaming a lot of years ago, and here I find myself still here. But Yeah. Great. We're excited to have you, and you have an impressive background. I don't think I did it justice in my intro here, but it spans the military and the industrial sector. Could you share some key highlights and experiences from your journey that have shaped your connection between the private and public sector? Yeah, sure. Thank you. So I've been blessed with a lot of terrific opportunities over the years. I had a great and rewarding career with the Army over 24 years, about 24 and a half years, give or take. Took me all over the world and deployments and, and such. And my last assignment was the one that brought me here, as I said, kicking and screaming a bit to work in the Pentagon for three years, which was uh, some very challenging work, but very, very rewarding. That job had to do with government relations and legislative liaisons. That's where I learned a whole lot about how defense budgets are put together. I learned a lot about defense economics and everything like that. And then my job was to take the Army budget across the river to Congress and defend the budget to Congress. So in that environment, I learned the legislative process, warts and all, and learned a lot there. Then when I transitioned out of the Army, I spent three years at the national headquarters of the American Red Cross doing legislative work for them. And then I went into the private sector. That would have been 20 years ago now, and it was with a company that was about to explode in its growth, providing shelters into DOD. And that's what one degree removed is what then got me involved into the 
industrial textile marketplace in a big way. And we'll probably get into some more details of that later as we proceed here into the podcast. But that's how that came about. I would want to add, because it's relevant to me and how I think and what I do for the industry, I was born and raised in Manchester, New Hampshire. Back in the day, it was a textile hub back in the days when New England was big into textiles. And my mom and dad, who never went to high school, were hourly wage earners in the textile mills there. My dad was a weaver for 40 years. My mom was a stitcher. Uh, She worked piecemeal back in the days when it was legal to do that. And so I, I have it in my DNA to be close to fabrics and textiles. So whenever I visit any kind of a plant, whether it's a cut and sew, whether it's a weaving, I see my mom and dad out there. It's a real strong connection for me. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. And we'd love to have you out to a a polo facility and walk and see what our associates are working on sometime. That's Um, a deal. (laughs) Great. You're on. Yeah, yeah. They, we don't have a facility in New England, but I nobody I, does anymore. I know it's sad, but that was such a a beacon of industry and a big part of American history. And I appreciate you sharing that personal connection. Working in both defense and private industry, how have you seen these intersect? What are some unique challenges that you've seen reoccur, and some opportunities, especially in the context of developing and deploying new technologies or anything that might be prevalent to our audience. And just for your context too, we have a lot of our customers that we make different components of their final package of something that will be going to the government and to the military and the armed services. I think what I'd say There are lots of challenges and lots of opportunities. I guess I would pick one in each of those two categories as I see it. The biggest, most obvious challenge is the complexity of defense procurement. Having been immersed in it for 25, 27 years, there are days when I still have to scratch my head on something. In many ways, there's nothing easy about that world, though I will say there are some spaces within defense procurement where senior leadership's been trying to introduce some reforms and streamline some processes. Don't know if we'll have time to get into that. I could explain one or two of those. But in the main, it's complex. It's got lots of layers. And there are a lot of points of intersection that are just not obvious uh, to most folks. The opportunity, the upside of all that is if a company can find its way, then what you can have with the potential there is a longer term contract that provides some predictability And for the most part, the government's good in paying its bills. The revenue stream 
for government business can is can be reliable and dependable for the most part and again can be very predictable that's certainly a big advantage then related to that i said i would give one for each let me give a second one for the opportunity is companies can be a part of leading some innovations i know defense procurement can be accused of being stodgy and not be very innovative because it's so cumbersome but it also it, it can be and, and there are examples of that in the textile industry so your company anybody's company could be on a leading edge of a new idea that may eventually find its way into the commercial sector so if a company's already been breaking through whether it's manufacturing processes, uh, the engineering of a textile, and there then comes upon some obvious commercial applications, and that company has a, a competitive advantage uh, in being in there. Do you mind if we expand on that a little bit in terms of when I'm new to this industry and when we basically will bid on something that's gone out for bid, and I think there are opportunities sometimes to enhance the product, make it cheaper, make it more practical, even when in terms of shelf life of certain raw materials and things like that. How would you recommend, who are the right people to go to, to even basically approach some innovative changes? Well, let me first say, when any company sees the bid, let's call it just the generic bid, there's often that proclivity, if you will, that if you have a better idea that you want to submit the better idea. And that's right. not always the best approach. It may well be, and every, one of, every solicitation is different, but it, it may well be that what you first need to do is just hit the requirement what's being asked for, especially if it happens to be one of those solicitations that's specific in what the customer wants. And save the enthusiasm for the bells and whistles later, perhaps once you've won the contract and you can introduce some engineering change proposals, we call them, to make the widget better. But the offering price is always going to be a key factor. So if you're introducing innovations that are, that haven't been asked for and that bumps up your price, then uh, you might be putting yourself at a disadvantage. Even while some solicitations will emphasize value over price, value meaning that, that they may not pick the least expensive submission. I've, I've seen solicitations where the most expensive proposal was submitted and selected because it was a better value proposition over the life cycle cost of the item, maintenance, or other criteria. Mm -hmm. Now, if a company has a great idea in the fabric world, most of those are handled out of a command call in 
DEFCOM, United States Army Development Command, out of the Soldier Support Center in a place called Natick, Massachusetts. For those of us who've been around a long time, we just say Natick and yeah. we kind of we know what that means. It, it tends to mean a lot of things. Yeah. But Natick does a, that particular uh, R&D facility does a lot of interesting work for soldier support, of which in the textile fabrics world is is a major player. And that's because not only though they are technically an army component, much of their work, they are the executive agents for all of the Department of Defense. For example, their division that can research, design, and develop parachutes, whether they're for personnel or whether they're the giant cargo parachutes where you're dropping logistics, sometimes even vehicles. They do that for all of the Department of Defense. All services will use whatever parachutes have been developed by NATO. Same goes for some, not all of apparel items. We know services each have their own requirements, but there, there are some basics that are the same. So those would be a couple of examples of how they're the executive agents for all of the Department of Defense. Yeah. NATIC would be the, really the key command to get right. to. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. And if you don't mind touching back on the reforms that you had mentioned and, and some streamlining of the, the processes that are being worked through, uh, I know that the world's changed and we talk about it in, in some way, shape, or form in almost every podcast in the last three years more than ever. And I feel like industry and defense have been talking about how do we adapt to the new environment and it sounds like there are some reforms that you had mentioned that might be interesting for people to learn more about yeah sure let me give you let me give you two a lot of the uh major commands out there across all the services have over the these last few years experimented with their own notion of a shark tank where they'll have a, a broad announcement out there. They'll have an application process, if you will. Tell us about your idea, give us the concepts, and then you get invited before a panel and you have some limited amount of time to present your idea. And at the end of the day or at the end of two days, you're offered a contract, which is a, that's a pretty cool idea. Yeah. Now, to be sure, they're not going to have that kind of solicitation for the next jet fighter, but they'll have it on, on smaller scales. And some would be related to this industry because there are projects that can be limited in their scope, or at least in their initial development phase that are in the fabrics and, and textile world, whether it be an item for extreme climates, maybe it's an, a, an item 
for medical applications. Maybe it's an item where they want to experiment with some wearable technology. Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great interest to DOD these days. That's one example. Another example is something, the technical term is other transaction authority. Everything in DOD has to have initials or an acronym. That's called the OTA. I'll refer to it as the OTA. And I've had a couple of clients have some great success with an OTA. And the way that process worked was, in fact, uh, I'll give you an example with Native. They published an OTA for a command post system, very broad in its description, didn't have a lot of specific requirements. Interested vendors had some freedom to introduce new ideas and new innovations. And a client had a great idea, had a great innovation, submitted that. The initial announcement was published. Initial Submissions were due within 60 days, I believe it was, could have been 90. Submissions were made about, then about 90 days, no, 60 days after that, there was a further selection of, were they, of all the submissions taken in, they took it down to two, asked for a different level of detail, something of, a little more specific for cost and technology. That was then turned around. And within about, it was about eight months, this company had themselves a $2 million research and development contract for deliverable within the next 12 months. So that's, in our world, in defense procurement, that's moving at light speed. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, yeah. it, it, and then that just further developed, if you will, the project just kept going on. And now they're, this company's on the edge of having a substantial program of record for this item uh, that didn't go through a typical solicitation procurement, which can take anywhere of upwards of three years. Then the contract is let and item prototypes, et cetera. And then six years later, you've got your first item. Eight years later, the force is deployed and has this in hand. By then, everything is nearly obsolete. That's what we're trying to, to prevent with these two types of, of approaches. Their, their own version of the shark tank and what I've just described as, a, as an OTA. Yeah, those are really great processes and innovation in their own and should help with the the obsolescence of goods by the time they're deployed in the field. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely appreciate you sharing those updates with us. And you've been involved with some building relationships with key players, some big names we mentioned in the intro, like between the Army National Guard, Phillips Healthcare, and General Dynamics. What strategies did you find most effective when establishing and nurturing these partnerships? From our perspective, deliverables are definitely key when, whenever we're working through or fulfilling a contract and communication, those types of things. But what did you see in part of the success that you had in, in developing those partnerships? 
What I would say is first go with a blanket statement that I am always a very strong proponent of collaboration. And sometimes it's even within your own industry with somebody who on the face of it might seem like a competitor. And I've seen that. And certainly the large defense contractors all do it. There isn't a major item of technology out there in the Department of Defense where every component is sole sourced by whoever's name is on the product. They'll have all manner of supply chain input from their competitors and vice versa. So it, it happens all day, every day. I think the textile industry could learn from that. I understand the parallels aren't precisely the same on the one hand, but on the other hand, I think the room for collaboration in the textile industry is such that it's greater than zero. For Polo Custom and for anybody else out there, I always strongly recommend to scan. If there's a direction the company wants to take, if there's a technology that to be investigated, if there's a product to be developed, I understand proprietary information and everything like that. I, I got that. But that ought not preclude some creative team building that helps everybody. Mm -hmm. And I've seen it time and time again. Uh, I was just at the largest defense show in the country is uh, called AUSA. We just had that here in, in Washington two weeks ago, I guess it was. And the same company that went through this OTA that I described, they reached out to some partnerships and they had a product in their own booth, but they had that same product being exhibited by two other companies in two other booths because of the mutual applications that could be seen both ways. You had one product being displayed three different places. Uh, that That's some powerful marketing there that you just can't put a dollar value on. Somebody walking around looking for an item that's like this, oh my gosh, I, didn't I just see that in the other aisle on, down the way? Oh, look, there it is again, and there it is again. There's, it makes a powerful statement to, to do that. So you, in, you look for other companies that have the same attitude as Polo, that right. you want to do something new and different, and very important, it has the spirit, the innovative spirit to do it, meaning that they're not only, not only going to talk the talk, but they can turn things around. Decision cycles are short. You can get to a yes, you can get to a no within a couple of phone calls, and, and a project keeps moving. Not trying to be negative here, but very often in my experience over these decades, the bigger the company, the more stodgy they are and the slower they are to move. Somebody like Polo Custom that 
got great ideas. It's got great people. We can fail quickly, learn from that, and move on. Being able to fail quickly is a great attribute for a company. Fail quickly, fail often, and by golly, you're going to find your way there before a whole lot of other competitors who are not even trying, right? Even in some government contracts, they're building in some ability to fail early, fail fail often, uh, and, and then come out the other end. Did that answer the question? It was kind of... I get excited about that particular topic. Oh, man, that was great. I, and I don't know if you noticed me smirking several times throughout your answers, but it, it just brought up experiences that I've been through already. And I'm an endurance athlete, so I'm a masochist by nature, which kind of makes it me a good fit to work within this industry sometimes because we were jo- yeah. a, a friend of mine who they are actually a supplier to us that then became a competitor to us because they started doing things prime, but then have become a partner with us on yeah. some contracts. It's just like, hey, we can be any one of these three things at different moments. And I've actually heard our executive team use the term competitive recently. Yeah. <laughs> and I yeah. thought that is so fitting. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I was laughing and, and nodding quite a bit during that response. Good. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I think that's really good. And it makes me think a little differently about some of our competitors too. I love that example of one product being shared in three different booths right. and, and AUSA is a one, one heck of a trade show. I was very uh, yeah. moved emotionally by the opening ceremonies, not this year, but the year before. And yeah. I was very impressed. Yeah. If you're not moved by some of that, you don't have a pulse. Well. <laughs> yeah. uh, Agreed. I would also say the other piece around collaborating, realities change in the marketplace. What's true today in terms of collaborator, competitor might not be true tomorrow. Having the attitude that you just described is is an important one to have, and more companies need to have it, quite honestly. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very healthy outlook for a company. Yeah, and we're seeing that in other industries that we serve as well, and we end up being better together when we do partner yep. and coordinate and work together to fulfill our customers' deliverables. Now, can you provide an overview of your experience with military contracting in the defense industry with you doing what you did with the Pentagon and the economics and all of that? Was that kind of your first delve into that field or into industry? I think I know where you're going with that. We'll back up a bit on... My experience base that's, as I said, I was blessed with a lot of different, I would say different non-traditional opportunities in the Army. Civilian graduate school education opportunities, all manner of, of great things. One of, one of those was a fellowship opportunity. <clears throat> when I was a younger officer, I was selected for a congressional fellowship. So I spent a year, and that program is still exists for all services spent a year on capitol hill on the personal staff of the united states 
senator. Now, that was my first immersion into a, a way, way different world. Yeah, I, yeah I, I didn't know if Congress had one S or two at the end of it when I went up there. And in the course of a year, learned so much about the legislative process. Again, warts and all. But I learned it. I learned it firsthand. And that kind of put a, uh, I got uh, bit by that bug, so to speak. It was very stimulating for me. It was very, it was exciting. It was, it was just a whole different world. So I did that for a year, then went back into the operational army, drew upon those experiences to a degree, but was really focused on being an army officer. But it was that experience that was in my file that had the army draw me back in into that particular position in the Pentagon, which was legislative affairs and legislative liaison based on my having that year's worth of experience. There wasn't as much of a effort for me to onboard or spin up some of the basics. And what what I did have to do in that position was get way more immersed in the complexities and the vagaries of how an army budget is put together. Uh, That being around that is not for the meek and the mild. That's some, that's some demanding work. And that's, that's gotta be one of the biggest budgets on the planet. Well, it's certainly the it's certainly the largest defense budget on a planet. By you, you can't go to the next ten and add them all together and get ours. There, let's just say there are a lot of inputs to that. Yeah. Now, and and even once you do that, imagine yourself with your board of directors is five hundred and thirty-five people. You've got 435 in a house, you got 100 in the Senate. So that's your board of directors. Seriously. I've never looked at it that way. Yeah. So it, regardless of what, the, what your program is, regardless of what the budget, there are thousands of budget lines in the defense budget. Every one of them has a constituency. So the Army budget is on this bus with 535 passengers. Every one of them has a steering wheel and every one of them has a brake. That's the way you need to think about the challenges of putting something out there. Even with Polo Custom, if it's a if it's if it's a plate carrier, if it's a piece of gear of any kind, whatever it is, I'm telling you, one of those 535 has an interest in it and they have a brake and they have a steering wheel that that makes for a interesting day on on any day so that having the broad appreciation for that is good for was great for me and most good companies understand that and they understand that you can kick against the goads as it were or you can just accept that this is the reality and we've got, it's a world we need to figure out how we're going to work within it. 
because you're not going to work around it. I'm telling you, I'm telling you what, <laughs> and it, that's not going to happen. Uh, yeah. It's answer to the board of directors. <laughs> yeah. It's too big to work around, and that board of directors is massive. It is. <laughs> That's, I hope that answered that. Oh my gosh, fascinating, Ron. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Ron, given your extensive experience, how do you see the current geopolitical landscape impacting trade, especially in the context of China and Taiwan and Russia and Ukraine? That's, That's a loaded a huge- one. Yeah, that's a huge question. And I know that's it's one that you probably want to have some focus to the textile and fabric industry. Let me see if let's see if I can do that. Let's take let's take Ukraine for an example. When that came on the scene, there was a sizable surge. That's I'm sorry, that's redundant. There was a surge in in a need for uniforms, protective gear, all items of, of, of how you outfit a soldier to a certain degree, some command post systems or soft wall shelters, but there was a surge. And there were elements within our industry who were being asked to support provide product that would go into that surge. I don't expect I don't expect that to to ease up anytime soon. With respect to Taiwan and China, that so Ukraine is a here and now we China Taiwan is more speculative, actually very speculative. And in this town, everybody has an opinion on what that looks like and where that could go. I certainly might, I I would have my own. But I think for, let me say this, let me try and put it this way. I think for any healthy company, the Management and executive level employees ought to have a fairly good grasp of the geopolitical scene around them. If I express my own opinion about uh, China, Taiwan, or Russia, Ukraine, or even what we've now had since October 7th, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian mm-hmm. uh, conflict coming coming on fire. Mm-hmm. That we ought to the the management and the executives ought to have a, a a better than simple layman's grasp of what that's about because it, a it makes them a better citizen, but b it makes them a better manager of their company because he or she can then anticipate how that may affect either their business directly, maybe it's one degree removed their industry, maybe it's another degree removed by maybe one of their collaborators, but it's important to know. And that's why I tend to talk about those kinds of ideas at ATA 
events, whether it's an Outlook conference or the ATA Expo, I tend to talk about these things because we all get busy. You all get busy and you don't necessarily, you have a hard time finding the time to, to absorb all of this. And I'm certainly not advocating that anybody and everybody become some sort of experts, if you will, insofar as it can be. But to be a, a little more aware than the average bear mm-hmm. is what I ask my clients to be. Uh, right. They're, they're just better executives for it. And mm-hmm. it would be true there in Polo Custom and. You know, talk about it. Have conversations. Don't avoid it. And sometimes we're just so close to the here and now in our company that we look up and suddenly, it seems, something's changed dramatically and it may have effect in our marketplace and we may have to catch up a little bit. That's great advice. And you remind me of my uh, economics professor from my MBA, because the way that you're speaking to it is as executives, as managers, we have to make decisions about what we're doing with the within the landscape. And I know Jen takes quite a bit away from the presentations at ATA that you've provided. And I'm not sure if she gleaned this information from you or from other sources similar to you, but I think she mentioned with Ukraine that there was a large amount of chlorine produced there that mm-hmm. was inputs for a lot of our other raw materials. And and there's just some of those domino effects that these conflicts basically topple within the industry. And I, I think about yeah. how much raw materials are made in China. And if a conflict were to arise, are we prepared? <laughs> what well, great segue. So I didn't touch on that one. Ukraine was a producer of all manner of raw materials that a lot of people didn't think about before all this. And so when I was talking about having a, an awareness of these flashpoints, sourcing wasn't the least of it. I was talking about it more as a if it becomes a market opportunity. But by way of sourcing, I don't think I need to tell anybody on this podcast the lessons we learned in the last three and a half years, give or take. And we've learned them the hard way. The U.S. government has taken that on. I know DOD has in, in a very big way in terms of sourcing and having a much more direct microscope, if you will, or at least a telescope on where raw materials are coming from and our dependence on China for the same. It's certainly made our work in protecting, defending, and perhaps even expanding the Berry Amendment. It's made that work certainly a lot easier. It wasn't all that long ago where I was personally spending a lot of time and energy parading and skulking around the halls of our Congress defending Barry. And there were some antibodies to that particular piece of legislation. Folks wanted to chip away at that. We don't have to do that anymore, thank goodness. That's probably a good example or a good indicator of how things have turned around 
and how an enterprise like DOD would even want to replicate something like a berry to other items other than fabrics. Sourcing is, yeah, is certainly a, a dominant issue for our industry. I am unabashedly strong pro berry, pro you know, be American, buy American, darn it. This, as I, I watched my parents, that's, that's part of what I learned from growing up and watching Manchester dry up uh, because of that, that attitude, that spirit. And you know what? If it requires legislation and protection to level the playing field, then by golly, let's have that conversation. Mm-hmm. It's fair trade, not free trade. And if, if there are things that need to be said and done to make things fair, then let's say and do it. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's probably a strong way to say it, but that's where I am. And, and, and I think that's where the industry ought to be. Absolutely. Even I'll add, ATA is very, I say they're very gifted in that they've been able to walk that fine line it's not as obvious in the new brand anymore in ATA, Advanced Textile Association, but in the one we just gave up, Industrial Fabrics Association, the last I was international. That hasn't changed. There are still, there's still a, a significant international component within the membership of ATA. So you might want to think, is it, do we have a conflict of interests here? And we don't. The organization has done a exceptional effort in, in being able to treat the two differently without harming either one. And the international members are aware of what it is we do for the Berry and which you know, specifically affects the DOD market. It's somewhat narrow, perhaps, but it's one that ATA supports wholeheartedly and, yeah, just without without reservation. And I've always been appreciative of how they, as the umbrella organization, has treated uh, domestic sourcing and the protection thereof through Barry. In, in the way they have. Yeah, no, I think that's outstanding. And I appreciate what you've done walking the halls and really protecting Barry for a number of years. I'm glad to hear the pressures eased off. Absolutely. There's, I think this is another labor of love initiative for you, which is your affiliation with the Gettysburg Leadership Experience, which yeah. draws leadership lessons from the most significant battle in American history. So can you share some insights into lessons that you glean from this experience, from the historical leadership that took place from Civil War generals and how that can be applied to contemporary business challenges? Yeah, happy to do so. Let me back it up a, a couple of layers to explain a little bit where that came from. In, in our conversations with the ATA board about 
we're always talking about what is it that we as an association can help provide our members that they either don't have the time or the resources to necessarily do for themselves, but is a need nevertheless. An obvious broad topic of conversation in these last four or five years has been workforce recruitment mm -hmm. and workforce retention. So those, that's the big idea, if you will. How, what are some things that we can do? And, and we, we kicked around a whole range and you've seen podcasts and the experts and, and folks contributing some best practices and some great ideas. And those have been very valuable. One of my passions for me, and I think this is a byproduct of my 24 plus years, is leader development. All of the services, but I'll speak to the Army in particular because that's where I know best, are very committed to lifelong learning and leader development. And it's just part of, it's endemic within any soldier's career that there are schools and there are leadership training opportunities that we are all going to be a part of that are tailored to where we might be in our career that we're going to go through. And we're a better institution for it. The thought being that's, it's no less true in industry that leader development ought to be a part of workforce retention. So it's, I'm working my way down through a funnel, you recruit, and now you have to retain, here's how you retain. And as you're doing so, grooming for other levels of responsibility. So we came up with the innovation of starting what we're going to call the ATA Leadership Academy. And what this academy is, it's going to be a living, breathing effort. And right now it has two components. One is a special partnership with a group called the Center for Creative Leadership. They're a nationally renowned leader development institution offers a whole wide range of programs. Theirs is a more classic coaching, classroom, the academic principles of, mm -hmm. of what we're trying to do here. And they're, they're very good at it. They're, they're very good at what they do. They've been around for a very long time. And the Army's been a client of theirs many times over. When you talk about Gettysburg, now you're talking about another way of introducing leader development in what we call something that's experiential. That is, we're going to take you through an experience, not, and that's different from what CCL is doing. Not that any one is better than the other, but when you have them both, you've, you've got a very strong approach. So an experiential approach, in the Army, we do what we call terrain walks. And that's a kind of a, the, the military term for a terrain walk is 
you study a particular battle. More importantly, you study the personalities and the leaders of said battle. And you can do that a bunch of different ways. You can do it through books. You can do it through movies. You can do it uh, a bunch of different ways. And then you go to the ground and you visit the ground and you walk the ground. So when we were developing this idea, I thought, what better way to do it than take it on with Gettysburg for just a, a whole lot of reasons. I won't go into them all here, but we selected Gettysburg. So in doing so, we found a, a vendor that leads these kind of tours, being led by a, a retired army officer who's also a PhD in history and taught history at West Point. So you got that going on. We had some homework to read before we went. There was a movie we had to watch before we went. And for those of us who were going for extra credit, there was a book to read before we went. So we did all that. So we were all level set going into Gettysburg. And then for the next two and a half days, we walked the ground. It was freezing cold the, day, the days we were there, which is very different from the battle itself, which was over the 4th of July, if you will, 2 to 4 July. It was extremely hot. It was some of the hotter recorded temperatures, not recorded because they didn't do that at the time, but in, in the historical documents, all with ill-fitting boots or no boots and woolen uniforms and everything like that. But, but you never list get an appreciation for how that could have been marching hundreds of miles over a matter of days and, and now being launched into a, a pitched, a pitched battle. So, you, you know, walking pickets charge, doing all these and, and immersing yourself. What are these leaders thinking about blue gray at what level? What was work? Why didn't this work? Why did this work? And that's immediately transferable to the office place. I'll give you one strong takeaway. It's in the course of all of our conversations and walking the ground, one of the lessons we learned was that Lee, General Lee, his vision, his idea of how this battle was to take place was not effectively communicated to those fighting on the ground two levels below him. Now, we call that, in that environment, we call that commander's intent. If you we had CEOs for the most part, so if you as a CEO, what is your vision, what is it that that you see for your company in a particular piece of your business, how do you see it? And how are you communicating that two levels beneath you? And could I go to one of those, one of your employees, two levels below you, ask that question and have them answer it in such a way that you're going to nod your head north and south, say, yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. The chances of that happening for most companies is pretty slim, I would tell you, because it's hard to do. 
and it requires work and it has to be deliberate. And if you don't do it right, you can have catastrophic consequences. So that was just one of the many takeaways we had from going to a place like Gettysburg. We're going to be expanding that. We're going to be marketing that very aggressively, promoting to leaders that, yeah, you have to spend a little bit of money and you have to do without your leaders for two and a half days, but they'll come away so much better for it and be able to draw lessons from it that are immediately transferable to wherever it is they're sitting. I can promise that. I can absolutely promise that walking Pickett's charge has direct relevance to the staff meeting you're going to have next week. <laughs> That's just the story that you told had me running through scenarios of different meetings coming up. And it sounds like a incredible experience and directly transferable, as you said. So where can people go to learn more? We'll put a link in our show notes. Yeah. First of all, if folks are going to ATA, they can come to the hub. ATA has got its big hub there all the time. There'll be folks there that would be ready to answer that question. If you want to go to Gisberg, because yeah. we're going to be... Uh, we're going to be putting some other cohorts. What we're trying to do there is get about 12 participants, give or take. We think that's a good number. And then there's one facilitator from the provider. That's just a, that's a magic number. It allows for good conversation. It's enough for a good conversation. It's not too much uh, for folks to, you can't hide. I don't want anybody to go to Gettysburg or an experiential event like that and be able to hide. You need to participate. You need to be out there and yeah, and experience it and have those exchanges about what this means to you in, in polo. And I know you, whoever goes, they'll come up with it just like you thought. Yep. There's an example. Yep. I can see that. I can see that. I can see that. <laughs> you had my mind turning and that sounds absolutely incredible and worth whatever money is being charged for it. And yeah, I appreciate your effort in helping the industry in that way as well. And Ron, this was an incredible conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much sure. for your service to our, our country and really our service to our industry, taking on the work that you have within the halls of Congress and the Senate and the daunting task of budgeting for our defense budget. I can't even begin to fathom just yeah. knowing budgeting for nonprofit boards I've been on for companies I've worked for. I cannot think of a, how that would go with a 435 person board of directors. Again, thank you so much and incredibly valuable conversation for our audience. And we really appreciate everything that you've done for our country and our industry. So thanks for your time today, Ron. So thank you everyone for tuning in to another episode of Inspiring Innovation. Uh, please comment with guests you'd like to have on the show, what you learned from Ron, what you want to hear more about. Maybe we can get him back here for a round two someday. I could have talked for, for many more hours with Ron and really appreciated all the insights that he shared with us today. So Thank you for tuning in. We release an episode the second Tuesday of every month, and we appreciate you listening to the podcast.